heavily, I'm a clown. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF 1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. Crap. Okay. All right. Now we're going. We're good. If only I had reminded you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, producer. Hey, I it wrote it at the top of the list. Professional producer. No, it's fine because I don't pay you, and you're not my producer. You're just. It's true. I get paid in Bitcoin rewards. You're just my Bitcoin, better half. As Bitcoin, see, we pump Bitcoin through this stream. Clearly, the price is determined upon our stream because we started the stream, you know, a few weeks ago, and now the price is. Yes, we pulled Bitcoin. Slightly out of its sideways um like time stuck or what i don't know what you would call it the time in moscow was standing still until we started this live show yes and the time the world cannot go on like that the show has a um, time dilation effects is what is what you're saying i feel like i need to do speaker view why does it why do i not show up when it does speaker view why am i just like this little screen at the top what is going on I'm not watching the stream. I'm watching the chat. All right, let's do that. That's better. Okay. All right, viewers at home. Sorry about that. So what are we talking about today, Ben? There's a there's a lot a lot happened this last week. Yeah. Um, well, all the funds and ETFs are negative because um, it looks out looks like somebody launched uh, or sent another application. We're up to eight ETF applications in the United States right now. Why do you think that is? Not the ETF applications, that's obvious, but why do you think all the funds are negative? Because I think those funds are a poor trade for folks that want to get more of like an institutional kind of exposure to Bitcoin, um, but people were utilizing them because there wasn't anything else. And I think there's just a tidal wave of anticipation of the ETFs coming through. So folks are taking money out of these funds that generally have fees and, and um, you know, the, the price doesn't track Bitcoin as closely as you see now that it's a bit of a cascade of some of those premiums going negative. So more folks are like, hey, ETFs coming anyway, let's take some out. You know, we know we have to take that capital gains at anyway. Um, I think they're they're preparing for the ETFs personally. So they're trying not to get caught with their pants down when the ETF comes and sort of erases that premium anyway, yeah. is what you're saying. So it sounds like those like that type of rumbling seems to indicate to me that like an ETF is close or, you know, you know, you, you never know for sure. Cause regulators are going to regulate, but, and he was elaborating. Yeah. I mean, I, I think people are getting ready for the American ETFs. You got, you got eight, um, eight American ETF applications in right now. And like all rumors are pointing to them finally being approved after two years, you got the, uh, SEC chair Hester Pierce saying Bitcoin can't be banned at this point. That it's 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 got to be coming eventually, right? What, what's really stopping them at this point? It's it's, it's funny because I just saw a tweet that was like, um, you know, Reddit buys uh, GameStop shares equals mar market manipulation. 
Fed prints $4 trillion for Wall Street equals banking, right? So it's like it, market manipulation and protecting investors is, is obviously a stupid narrative anyway, but mm. man, I, I think it's just coming and uh, whatever. Like I, you know, it's, I, I'm not like when ETF or anything. I just, I think it's just, it's just a matter of time anyway. And it, I think it will help build, build liquidity for the asset class. Of course, it's not your keys, not your coins, but um, institutional people are, are kind of, uh, they're going to be late to the custodial game anyway. So. I think it's so disgusting, man. Like the narratives around like regulation and central banking and finance in general. Like, well, what's more disgusting to me is that the majority of the people in my daily life are so totally oblivious to it. And I'm like, this is literally the only thing I ever think about every day, all day long. And you people have no idea what I'm even talking about. Like you literally don't even know it exists. Right. Like you show them this chart, for example. Um, I saw this chart the other day. I really liked it. Um, this chart, like you'd have to explain to them what this even means, right? Um, but I think that this is like extremely important to understand like from what's going on in the world right now that uh, essentially like this, this number is about to go negative, right? Um, the, the ratio of the S&P 500 to the, the federal balance sheet that, that they're pumping and pumping, they're, they're printing and printing and, and Jerome Powell's turning that little printing dial and, and uh, it's, it's like having diminishing returns on the asset prices. It's the, the Fed's third mandate, I always say, like uh, that they have to keep the wealth of the, uh, the wealthy inflated, the, the, the assets of the wealthy inflated, otherwise there'll be unrest. It's funny because you have unrest on the side of the unwashed masses today, but oof, you don't want unrest on the side of the wealthy because they'll just go somewhere else, right? <laughs> well, it's not just that too. It's like the, the wealthy are the ones employing, you know, in a way it's sort of like um, <laughs> quote unquote trickle down economics, right? Where they're keeping, you know, the, the, the lights on for the wealthy and like, oh, it's happy. Everything's good. The party's still going. So keep, keep your businesses open, keep paying your employees, um, you know, keep, keep doing those equity buybacks. Mm. We got to keep the party going, but it's, it's disgusting, man. And like, I'm even more convinced after I spent like this past week, I was looking at some data, like things like, like annual death rates and like percentage change increases in annual death rates, like year over year for the last decade. And like, seasonal flu cases and stuff like that. And I, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to get into all that, but it's so clear to me that what was going on here, you know, based on what was going on, like in 2019 with the repo liquidity meltdown and the bond yield curve inversion and the extremely low unemployment, there was a recession, right. And when everyone knew it was coming and then somebody brought that memory hole thing up where like all those CEOs stepped down. I think we talked about this last week. Yeah, It's so obvious to me, like what was going on here was that, the central, like everybody knew that the central banks were going to have to inject unprecedented amounts of liquidity to, to keep this thing running. And like, that's where we are. We're literally just a year and a half, two years into this psyop of needing to inject trillions of dollars on a regular basis into the system to keep it running. Yeah. I, I, saw, up. I saw another tweet recently that was like, uh, Obama proposal was like 780 something billion dollars and it caused like the greatest uproar of people printing money and bailing out wall street and all this stuff and today like they printed what like eight trillion dollars last year and everyone's like oh we got to do it to keep the uh, you know yeah <laughs> our covid it's... caused this obviously like <laughs> we didn't have a choice you know we right. we thank god you know we have central banking to save us from this economic 
collapse that has been and like people have no savings so like even these business most of these businesses have no savings so like they just go under unless the money printer goes burr and and bails them out you know redistributes capital and it's all a zombie dude well yeah, i don't it's, know it's you know it's, it's even weird. worse yeah i mean i talk about the zombies a lot too colin but like it's even worse than just like it's the zombies because it's it's hollowing out like the uh the small businesses right because they, they, they don't can't have, compete yeah they, and they, they don't have as much access to that money printer and credit and all that stuff. The the larger corporations are going to do much better through this. So, you know, people always tell, oh, well, you know, monopoly, you need the government to break up the monopoly. No, here's folks, here's the government creating these monopolies right, right here in front of your eyes. And you and I talked about this a lot where I'd be like, because you used to you used to manage that restaurant and you hated it so much. And I'd be like, dude, why don't you like go open your own restaurant? And like, you you just tell me like because I because I can't compete like how do I compete with these corporate franchises I just yeah. can't they're unkillable <laughs> yeah and they're they're all zombies right they're all zombies no and that's the thing that you see too is like there are very few places in America where you can go now and find a, like a lot of unique local restaurants that are locally owned and maybe 100%. like originated locally there are places you can go where there where you can still find that particularly places where tourism is high. Um, and they can attract like a lot of enough customers. And I, I have like this theory that some of those places that you go to that are really, really good in those touristy places, um, they're probably not even profitable. Like I bet you in a lot of cases they operate at a loss. And the only the only reason that they stay in business is because they have cash flow and they can just keep getting credit. Yeah, totally, man. Um, hey, you want to switch gears? Uh, we had a few things that are pretty big happen this week. Um, I think, um, I mean, I, I'll, I'll bring it up, but I, I don't think I want to spend a lot of time on it. The China CBDC thing. Did you see this? No. So China launched their CBDC, I guess, or they're like in the process of actually launching it now. Um, and it's funny because every time somebody would ask me about CBDC, I'd laugh and say, well, show me the white paper and I'll, I'll tell you why it's broken. Right. And uh, so they're, they're coming out with this uh, just digi- digital yuan or whatever. And they, they've introduced a great new feature, uh, Colin. Um, so they think, you know, in case of a crisis or something like that, or there was an economic downturn, um, that introducing a new feature where they can put an expiration date on your money uh, would be really great to stimulate the economy. So wouldn't that be awesome is if you had saved up some money, you had it in the CBDC, and all of a sudden it was expiring next month. Or, or <laughs> it's what the people want. <laughs> it's you know you gotta you gotta follow the demand, I guess, right? Um, it, this this is the dystopian reality that awaits us, folks, if we don't have Bitcoin. So again, th- <laughs> this has been done before, though, hasn't it? Or at the very least, I know it's been proposed by wild-eyed Keynesians with no understanding of reality. Well, negative interest rates are kind of a form of this, but like, um, I, I mean, again, I, I haven't read the white paper, but um, well, it seems I, like it's a more aggressive version of that. At one point I was reading um, about this particular topic, but this was like years ago. And I remember reading that they tried to do this with bills where like the bills and serial numbers ending in like a certain range would oh, expire on a certain time period and they, they i think they tested this but i can't i can't remember the specifics maybe like one of the listeners knows or, or we'll have to look into that but i i remember reading it about this being proposed and like tested in a small community um a while back well you know what's really interesting i um i, I we have a an anonymous guest coming on um what bitcoin did uh, sometime in the future 
and I can reveal very, very little about him and what he does, but um, he is somewhat close to um, what central banks do. Um, and he, he basically illuminated to me the same things that, you know, you and I already suspected is that these, these central banks are running around and literally have no effing clue how CBDCs actually will help them compete. They just think it's like it, they've, they've seen that there's this Bitcoin thing and they know there's a there there. So they're like, oh, well, we should do our own Bitcoin thing. Right. And it's literally, that's what they're doing. And so you can like, see it, dude, if you it's like read, corporate blockchain, it's a hundred percent of corporate blockchain, because if you, if you read about what the, the things that they're trying to do like this, you know, that, that feature, right. Like nobody wants that. Um, or the, um, if you remember the, when the ECB was talking about a, CB, a CBDC with negative interest rates and they were like creating, um, you know, a, a cash, uh, a, like, uh, what do you call it? An exchange rate for cash that would be different than the CBDC rate so that they could actually manage um, negative interest rates because otherwise people wouldn't put money in the CBDC. They just take it out cash and put it under their, their mattress because the CBDC would be depreciating against the, the cash. I mean, it's, it's just absolutely insanity. And I think that this harkens back to our classic Bitcoin spectrum episode on the Bitcoin echo chamber where we talked about all of the, <clears throat> the multidisciplinary aspects of bitcoin and how hard it is to understand why bitcoin has value um and i i dude it really it just speaks to how early we are like still because most of these people most of these institutions most of these organizations there are a few that get it like the cts and the michael sailors but like most of these institutions they do not understand what's happening and they don't understand why bitcoin keeps going up and like that's why all the blue checks keep saying it's a bubble or it's too volatile to be a c- currency because they don't understand that Bitcoin is hyper deflating everything. Yeah. Um, shout out to Unchained Capital again for, for creating this thing. And uh, it, it's pretty old. I, I think definitely still needs to be updated. Maybe I'll do that at some point. But man, if you, if you haven't seen that episode, go watch it. Um, I just gave a talk at Baruch College um about basically about that episode but also about wtf happened in 1971 shout out to charles huang um who runs that college class but um this the, the really important part about this chart is that like in order to understand bitcoin you pretty much need to have a base knowledge a, a solid first principles understanding of every single one of these different things um to be able to and and not only that but how they Re, um, interact on an inter, interdisciplinary nature, and and I don't think central banks have all of that understanding and and have the the willpower and the and the, and the, to to do the research and to do all the uh, you know like the back and forth that you know people like you and I have done. So they they can't possibly. They're not agile enough. They're too entrenched. So I'm curious when you gave that talk, what was the reception like? Did you have like a lot of questions? It was funny. I tried to pack a lot into it. Afternoon, Will. How are you? Um, uh, Will's in the chat. Um, I I went really fast and I went and tried to cover a lot of ground. And like, you know, it's a college class on Zoom. So you see like a lot of people like, uh, you know, just kind of watching. And like, I could see by the end of the class, like people were like this and they were smiling and interested. And there was a bunch of great questions afterwards. So it was super rewarding. Um, yeah, really enjoyed it. I need to get on that local that local college circuit <laughs> well i'd met um i met charles wong um at a bitcoin meetup with um pierre richard um and a few other great people and and charles we, we just connected at the at the meetup 
Um, but he had gone and like then checked out our, our Bitcoin spectrum episode and he listened to it. And he was like, man, the way you guys explained why, you know, how, how to understand Bitcoin, how to approach it, I think is one of the most interesting ways I'd heard it. Um, you should come, come, come talk in my college. And that was like a year or two ago. And it was like, he's in New York, just like five hours away from me. And it took us a while to like actually get it. To, and then COVID happens and now we're now at Zoom. So he's like, hey, let's just do it online. So Dude, that is super cool. I'm really glad A, that that episode had that impact and B, that you were able to make that happen. Yeah, it was cool. Um, let's see, next topic. Do you want to talk about Peter Thiel? Yes, Peter Thiel. I, I, I think this is funny because I, I did the reactionary um, kind of stupid take at first too when I first saw it. And then I saw, you know, all of our, our, our Twitter brethren who, who, who commented on this and I think uh, illuminated a, a more nuanced position of what he was trying to say. Um, I don't know, man. I mean, on one hand, I want to believe like, like American Hoddle's take, right? That he's just soft shilling. Um, he's playing reverse psychology, right? With with bureaucrats, and he's like, "Oh, China's trying to, you know, use Bitcoin to dethrone the U.S. dollar." Um, maybe you know. Granted, you know, I'm not Peter Thiel. I don't know how that world works or how those people think um, and what pushes their buttons. And maybe that's it. Um, but I. I'm skeptical, man. I mean, I'm I'm not really making any conclusions about what he said at the moment and just sort of assuming he's a bad actor, which is what I do with most people in general. But I'm watching um, and I'm listening. I don't know, dude. I don't like what I'm hearing. I I tend to side with Hoddle on this. Like I said, um, I, I think it. I think he's illuminating the fact that Bitcoin is a very powerful tool. And, and really almost any tool can be used as a weapon. And that um, he's saying that, you know, a- any country could be using this as a weapon against the United States uh, or, or any other country, but just by simply embracing it, right? And you're not necessarily like attacking or, or trying to harm somebody. It's not an aggression, so to speak. It's utilizing a tool that's, that's gonna put you uh, ahead of other people. Um, I, I think that's pretty simple. Here's why I don't like his narrative. Um, let's say that bureaucrats and regulators latch onto that narrative. Is that a good thing for the American people? If all of the bureaucrats suddenly believe that Bitcoin is a Chinese weapon, um, maybe now they have an interest in it for the purposes of the US government, but they might not want the people to have anything to do with it. Because if it's I, I worry that, that this narrative is potentially going to poison the well in terms of um, the top-down approach to the average American having and using Bitcoin. Because um, it's sort of like, well, this is a nuclear monetary weapons technology. You people don't need this. We need this. So you need to give all of your Bitcoin to us and we're going to hold it because we have to fight evil china um and keep them from destroying our monetary hegemony yeah it, it's certainly a weird approach and i'm i'm no like peter Thiel fan fanboy or anything i just i thought it was very interesting that he was like i'm a bitcoin maximalist um and 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 i think what he was trying to do is just generate kind of buzz and um you know discussion maybe but uh definitely not the approach i would have taken well you know all all bitcoin maximalists they always start out by saying they're pro crypto 
And then they say, okay. I'm a Bitcoin maximalist. I mean, I get what he was saying there is like he made a general statement and then a specific statement. Oh, but I think he's LARPing a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Bitcoin doesn't give a shit. <laughs> he made us listen. That's for sure. That's what he it, wanted. At least he didn't start his own shitcoin inside a messaging app that a lot of people really enjoyed. Oh, dude. You know what's the, the worst part about that? Did you see the conversation on Twitter where I think it was like one of the signal developers responded to somebody's criticism and basically said, oh, you know, we looked into Bitcoin and Lightning and like Lightning just isn't ready yet for that. Uh, how many times have we heard that type of just total BS uh, that some developer used to justify their shitcoin integration? They're right. like, oh, hey, no, yeah, we looked into like the best protocol in the world. Um, like it's just not ready. So like we didn't even bother and we just went over to this extremely horrible scammy thing instead. Right. And I can translate that for the plebs. What he's really saying is it turns out we can't print lightning tokens and then make money off of them. Right. So we're going to launch an ICO token. Right. Essentially. There's, right. there's, there's very little profit margin in it for yes. us in yes. that. So we decided not to integrate it because this other company offered us like half a million dollars in their crap coin that they claim will pump 10,000% if you know, we implement it into our system. So yeah, I don't, I don't know why he just didn't come out and say that. Obviously that right. people would understand if he, I, I have heard that line <laughs> so many times, man. And it's so frustrating because all of the innovation in crypto is happening in Bitcoin. There is literally zero innovation happening anywhere else. What are, what else have we seen this year? Like outside of Bitcoin fucking NFTs. <laughs> Great. Thanks. Thanks, Tom Brady. Thanks for getting on board the train while Russell Kung leaves you in the dust. Yeah, I have a chart for that. So this is innovation in Bitcoin, which is hilarious. Anytime that anytime a shitcoiner ever, and you guys can DM me, I'll send you this chart too. Anytime a shitcoiner is like, well, there's no innovation in Bitcoin. It's, it's, it's Facebook, it's dead technology or whatever. Show them this chart and ask them how many of these things they understand what they are and what they do. Uh, and then point them to the fact that down here, it says mass taproot, groot, uh, tap script and uh, Schnorr signatures and aggregated signatures will be built off that and all of the chains that are going to come off of tap script and how they, they can't even fathom the things that are coming right now, let alone like what's happening already. Right. Like it, it's absolutely complete bullshit. And, and then there's the other one too. So this is, um, I think this is made by Ansel Enders. Yes. Um, oops. I didn't mean to switch that. Um, Ansel Linders from uh, BTC markets. Uh, he had made another one a while back, but um, he updated it. So this is like a timeline of all the innovation that went into um, Bitcoin's development in the first place. Like, you know, Bitcoin is not old tech. It's 40 years of development. So um, that's really cool. I have not yeah, seen that. It's a really good one. Shout out Ansel, even though you and I disagree strongly on CBI. And I, I wonder about that. Like, so, you know, Ansel lives like nearby me right now. Oh, we need to him and I need to meet up. We were talking about that in DMs because yeah, you guys should have a beer. Yeah, I need I need to know what goes on in his mind because he disagrees with me, and and not very many people do that. Not very many Bitcoiners do that. Yeah, uh, I I'll come down for that. We'll go have a beer. Oh, that'd be cool, man. Um, similar kind of vein. Um, I I, I wanted to mention briefly UBI. Um, because <laughs> I see I keep seeing this come up. Even some like prominent Bitcoin, not super prominent Bitcoiners, but um. Like uh, some some really smart people on, on Clubhouse have talked about how 
UBI is a way out for like the, the lower class that's been left behind today. And there's no really option, right? They're going to get automated out of their jobs that they have no savings. So we, if we don't give them UBI, um, then, you know, obviously it's like Armageddon or something. And like, man, <laughs> do you, I mean, do you want to start on this Colin? Yeah, I will. I'll tell you why this is fucked up. It's because it, it's like all those, those um, crypto token airdrops, right? What do people do with them? They they take them and they liquidate them and they go and like blow the money at a bar. Like you're, you're not going to fix. Um, first of all, I, I, I believe the poor will be with you always. Right. That's sort of just a fact of life, whether you're under a hard money system, whether you're under a loose money system, it doesn't matter. Um, but set that aside. Right. These people's problem is that they. Granted, you know, some of them make like eight dollars an hour and like they they legitimately cannot save whether it be you know ten dollars a month like they they just cannot save but beyond that even if they sell sell the shares is what you're saying (laughs) right right beyond that their time preference is so high that you you can you could probably drop i mean take take lottery winners for example how many of them end up extremely unhappy depressed dead or broke within the next five years most Right. And, and it's not because their problem wasn't that they didn't have money. Right. Their problem was their time preference. Their problem was the way that they approached life in general. You're not going to fix wealth inequality by taking from somebody and giving it to somebody else because they don't know what to do with it. They haven't been rewarded that capital through, you know, their own productive contributions to society. Like, Man, I, I could go I could go on a huge tangent about this. I'm not going to. No, but I'd like to pull on that thread that you were kind of um, unraveling there a little bit is about the redistribution thing. Because I always bring this up when somebody talks about UBI. I just say, well, it is re- redistribution. And then I always get pushed back. And they're like, oh, well, it's not going to take from the wealthy. And I'm like, I, I fucking know that. But it's, it is a form of redistribution. It is redistributing wealth. Otherwise, it's not doing anything, right? If you understand what UBI, it is a form of redistribution. So if it's not coming from the wealthiest, because we know it isn't, right, um, then who is it coming from, right? Because the wealthiest, they're protecting all their wealth and assets. They they already know how to avoid inflation. Um, they know how to avoid taxes better than you can and better than the middle class. And that's where it comes from. It's going to come from the middle class, which has already been hollowed out and hollowed out and basically doesn't even exist. So you're going to take from like the lowest rungs of society uh, or just above them and give it to the lower rungs. Uh, and it's 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 going to create malincentives um, for like not working. You know, if it's if it's enough to matter, um, people are going to be able to like basically live in a very small apartment and just live off that and play fucking video games, smoke weed all day. And it's 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 going to hurt productivity in the long run. I mean, yeah, again, you can go on forever about ever about this. But there, but I mean, you know, I'd be interested to know that we'll never know this data, but I'd be interested to know how many people that got ten thousand dollars from the government in the last year or whatever. Um use that money to like buy Bitcoin. Cause oh. like, for example, for me, you know, I, I, I have a child so, and I'm married. So I got quite a bit more money, you know, airdropped on me by the government than a single, you know, 30 year old. Um, and I took the majority of it and I, I'm pretty sure you guys know what I did with it. Like I contrast that with like my roommate, you know, who, who, you know, great guy. We've had many conversations about Bitcoin. They started back when it was $8,000 and he didn't listen. And I've called him an idiot a thousand times like, over and over. And he still doesn't want to listen. When he gets his UBI checks, 
he takes them and goes and buys like video games because he's a video game collector. And and his argument to me was this stuff's only going up in value. And I'm like, no, dude, it isn't. The You're dollar is hyper video inflated. games. I don't think yeah. that's how it goes. <laughs> no, well, he like old ones, like like oh, retro. Yeah. He's got like I five six IKEA shelves full of like old video mm-hmm. games that supposedly you know demand a premium because collector value and whatever. I'm like, no, dude, you don't understand. The dollar is hyperinflating. He's like, well, Bitcoin is the same thing as my video games. No, it's not. It's better money. Your <laughs> video games are a money substitute, are and they're old. only going up in value because the dollar is hyperinflating. Oh man, um, you, you should just send him that that account. That's like the uh, the the stimulus check is now worth. Like, just send him that. Like, once he would a be month. so pissed because he knows he month, knows, cause... dude. Because like <laughs> thirty years ago, I was or. Yeah, almost three years ago, I was like telling him, I was like, dude, you got to buy Bitcoin. You got to buy Bitcoin. You got to buy Bitcoin. And he always had an excuse. He's like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like it's $8,000 right now and that's kind of high. I'm probably going to, if it goes down to like $3,000, i will buy some. And you, you know how that story goes. Like if you don't buy today, you're not going to buy tomorrow. Yep. I think Richard L.A. in the uh, chat is the hot take. Andrew Yang was a plant to normalize UBI. I think you're right, buddy. Um. Dude, I wanted to talk about vaccines really quick. I thought I had a hot take on it and you can tell me I'm stupid and it's not a hot take, but man, like, okay. So here's, here's the real talk is that, yeah, I don't, I really don't want to get the vaccine. I don't trust it at all. I don't like it, but like, I think we're starting to see data come out that it's not really that dangerous. Um, you know, I mean, they're, I'm the, the stupid fraud articles about like the long-term effects of um, COVID, I think are all bullshit. Um, I just read one today. that's like, uh, that, you know, like 10, 20% or something develop long-term, you know, neurological or psychological disorders. And like, well, how many of those psychological disorders are coming from the lockdowns and, and the fact that everyone has no idea what that future is going to bring right now. But that all aside, um, you know, <laughs> the, the vaccines, if they're, let's, let's just hypothetically, right. If the vaccines are actually useful and valuable to society, right. Um, and there was a demand for those vaccines, um, then wouldn't, wouldn't, that increased the price of vaccines and and like the market could solve this problem, right? Like, why do we need this government distribution and propaganda machine to like convince everybody to take the vaccine? If they're really that useful to the population, right? If they're really not that dangerous, all these things, um, doesn't, doesn't, can we just let the market take care of that? Does that, does that make any sense? This ain't a free market, bud. <laughs> I don't know how to tell you this. It's really that, It's really Backroom good. deals. I mean, what what we're essentially looking at is the emergence of a military industrial complex in the field of medicine. That's what we're watching happen. Because if you remember back in like 2020, how many politicians did you hear say that this was a war, right? That drums up a lot of um, particular feelings in the masses, right? So now people are willing to support get behind whatever um any politician who's willing to say yeah we're going to set aside a trillion dollars and it's going to be used to buy vaccines and airdrop them on the people um because we have got to fight this pandemic and it's like i said like go look at the freaking um per capita death rate in 2020 and look at the annualized change in per capita death rate over the last decade it is statistically 2020 was statistically insignificant it did not break the trend you were lied to mm-hmm. and somebody somewhere made, well, lots of people, probably lots of places, but also in particular, several people made lots of money 
off of this. It's no different than the military industrial complex. Don't think that all of these wars that happened in the United States over the last 100 years were about freedom. They were not. They were about money. They were about control. They were about control of banking. And that's why we're, we're still doing it today. You know, open any news media outlet, any mainstream news media outlet. What will you see right now? Saber rattling. Why? Because we need another war. Yeah, and, and I'll point out that that military industrial complex in the form of a medical establishment um, was like 100% supported by the, the stupid patent system that, you know, makes things like uh, insulin cost uh, 10, 10 or 100 times more than it does in other countries, right? That we've got to abol- abolish the fucking patent system on, on drugs and right. uh, medical medical devices right. because that's, that's the government enforced monopoly on uh, the medical industry. Well, and the groundwork for this was laid hundred years ago, like go watch James Corbett's documentary, Rothschild medicine. It talks all about how, you know, the, the insurance industry and the, um, the certification process for doctors and all these things were like co-opted by these big organizations, you know, a century ago. And they've essentially just laid the groundwork to funnel money into their bank accounts without providing real value to the consumer. That is the model of crony capitalism. Yes. Get in the bed with the regulators force them to regulate the market to such a degree that most of the capital flowing into that market, whether that demand be real or crony, you know, comes to you because you have what's called a legal monopoly where you have a monopoly on the system because regulators create the system in such a way that only a certain small number of people can actually participate in the market. Oh, you know what this makes me think of? Um, this is there was a tweet I made a really long time ago before I had like more than a thousand followers or something that uh, uh, not very many people have seen, and it was um, it was about like a world of sound money um, uh, allows us to like secure our wealth and, and think about the future, um, but the world of fiat money. Um, it incentivizes us to secure the streams of money, right? So if you if you amass wealth today, um, you have to essentially either gamble on the stock market or, or other or other devices um, to to preserve that wealth, right? Alone, this is something that most Bitcoiners understand at this point. In fact, like a Jimmy Song had a great kind of take on this, where he said, um, "Keeping the money you made is a job in itself." Every successful startup founder seems to retire to angel investor, right? Bitcoin frees the most productive people to keep creating. So you either have, the paradigm is the way that you can be wealthy today is either to secure a stream of money, which is kind of what you were just talking about, right? Secure those streams of money or to um, to own all the assets and, and to, to bet on the right assets at the right time so you can preserve and maybe even grow your wealth because of the inflated dollar. Bitcoin fixes this because we can, you know, as, as entrepreneurs, we can create a product and get the money and then hold that money, right? That's all you need to do. Today, you need planned obsolescence on all these other schemes in order to keep securing those streams of money. It's, it's completely fucked. Right. I mean, rewind back to like one of the greatest entrepreneurs in history, Henry Ford, right? Yes. What, how did he, what was his business model? Was it to build planned obsolescences into the Model T so that people would need to buy another car in five years? No. Like, he, he built those cars to last for life. And he didn't care about market saturation because he didn't need to protect revenue streams. Because And his business grew because he was providing unprecedented new value to his consumers. And I tweeted about this the other day, like imagine a world 
built on hard money where the average worker had enough savings accumulated that appreciated in value over time to be able to say to any employer, no, that's dumb. I quit. Right. Like the, and I, what made me think about this is that like, I'm getting ready to transition out of the military and I'm starting to like immerse myself in corporate culture. And um, it, there's a lot of dumb shit in corporate culture. And I'm, 90% sure that people like me put up with it because they don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. I have a choice now because I'm afforded that luxury because of Bitcoin. But like how much different would the, would our society right now be at the corporate level if people if employees were willing to walk away? If they weren't, you know, two paychecks away from insolvency because they save in soft money. And then in death slavery, right? And there's, there's no savings and there's more debt than there ever has been um, on every single aspect on the governmental aspect on the institutional aspect on the on the corporation aspect and on the individual aspect that while we only have debt we have no savings it's, it's, and you have to have cash flow to service that debt or the bank comes and takes all your stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> even a, even as a retiree like think about this even as a retiree in the united states like who's paid off their mortgage you still need some sort of revenue stream whether that be like from your retirement you know, account or your job bagging groceries at the local Walmart, you need a revenue stream to be able to pay your taxes to the government. Even if like you own everything in your life, you need to have a revenue stream of some kind. Yeah. And, and those prices go up, the, the, the value of your home goes up. So the taxes of that goes up over time. I mean, there's just, there's like no way out of these traps, right? Only, only sound money can fix this, man. Hopefully, hopefully a lot of things happen. I don't know. You see all the hubbub about the uh, CCI. What is CCI? Uh, it's like the new, um, you know, the like. I think it's the coin something, uh, something group. Uh, so it's basically like an advisory group. It's it's the new um, like Satoshi Roundtable. This new Sato- the the new. Um, DGC, right? Oh, I think they were talking about this on TFTC where they were saying that yeah. uh, they have no intentions of sponsoring open source development or something like that. Yeah, so it's just like one of these, again, it's one of these think tank things. And it's like, I mean, I saw some some tanks that were like, you know, you know, Beauty On, for example, had a tank that was like, these people are going to, you know, um, are, are, are enemies of Bitcoin and they're going to um, get the governments and large corporations to try to take over Bitcoin again. And I was like, first of all, I mean, I, I don't know anything about this group. They're, they're not doing that now. Um, and if they do it in the future, we already know how that plays out. So um, I, I think it's interesting. I, I think there was good discussion around it. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think it, it's so important to know the history of Bitcoin um, because we, we know how these things play out. Um, and you, you really only know how to be on the right side of that and how to see through that bullshit if you understand what happened previously. Yeah, I'm pretty uninterested in this in general because this it's such a legacy idea, right? Yeah. This like, well, we'll create this foundation um, <laughs> full of the, and it'll be a think tank full of all of these big name individuals and we'll have sway around, you know, how, how um, things emerge. Like that's just an old way of thinking and the world doesn't work like that anymore. The world is built on open source software. And like if this organization really wants to make an impact of any kind, then they need to be sponsoring open source developers. Um, 
join and, the mailing list IRC. <laughs> right. No, and, and it's like how many GitHub contributions or how many um, pull requests has this organization made? Yeah. Probably zero. Exactly. Um, the, this is a huge misallocation of, of time and capital. And it's ultimately going to be, you know, it, this was a great thing to do if you wanted to affect change in 1890, you know, for the next century. Like our, our past century has been ruled by these think tanks and foundations that have steered um, regulation but they're, they're not going to have as much impact anymore because the nation states aren't going to have as much power going into the future because they're losing their uh, monetary seniorage. You, um, you posted a lot about bonds and stuff this, this month. Did you, uh, do you want to talk about this one or, um, did I post that one? I thought you posted both of these. Okay. So like what I was looking at in particular, um, <clears throat> was whether or not junk bond yield was ever was was in was close to being passed by 10-year treasury yield or or just treasury yield in general because traditionally speaking now keep in mind guys i'm just like an amateur like i don't even trade credit markets i just think they're interesting um especially like listening to guys like greg voss and like preston pish like who, who understand this way better than i do but looking at this you would expect the yield on a junk bond to be a lot higher than a sovereign debt instrument simply because um, all external factors aside, it's more risky, right? Because the, the, whatever corporate issues, the junk bond is just going to have a lower credit rating and set the credit rating aside, less ability to meet the obligations that they've issued. Right. But what we saw, um, you know, look at that chart, you see that spike up in 2020. That's what we saw was the demand for junk bonds went sky high because the search for yield was so great. Um, You're talking about here. Right. And it, because look, when you see, you sort of see like an inverse movement happening there where um, whenever yields on sovereign bonds tanked, yields on corporate debt shot up because the demand was so high. And this is why corporations were able to issue like 0% corporate debt. And in some cases, they're still able to do it. I mean, Michael Saylor did it right with, with micro strategies. So what I'm watching is if this inverts, because if this inverts, well, then now we know like something really screwy is about to happen because if um, U.S. treasuries are ever yielding more than junk bonds, and, and it's kind of points back to what you showed earlier about the, um, the S&P 500 to Fed balance sheet, then we know that like the amount of liquidity being pumped into the system um, at the corporate level is so great that it's literally driven risk, not yield from risk to zero, not risk, but yield from risk to mm -hmm. zero. Um, and what's likely going to happen after that is like sovereign debt default. And I could be wrong. Maybe this isn't a good signal at all. Maybe this will never happen. But I was looking at that chart and I saw those two starting to converge, you know, after they, they split apart. And then now look, they're starting to converge. And I would be really interested to live in a time when, when those inverted. Yeah, for sure. That, that makes a lot of sense. There, there should be inherently more risk on these junk bonds. Um, there should be less risk because at least nominally the U.S. is going to continue paying off the yields on their bonds for for the time being, right? Um, so these uh, intrinsically these junk bonds should have more risk and therefore more yield because 
I'm less willing, I'm less willing to lend somebody money that doesn't have as good a credit rating. Um, and, and therefore, and therefore the fact that they are reversing at all, um, kind of shows you the, the distortions in the price of risk. I think that's what you're trying to get at that the, the price of money, right. And, and we always talk about like the fed, the fed targets, these very low interest rates. Uh, and it's very complex kind of how they do that, right. That they're, they're working in the, the repo markets to try to set a target. Um, they don't actually set the price of borrowing money at the commercial bank level. Um, but what they're doing is they're manipulating the price of risk. Uh, which, which, as I always talk about, that shifts the risk. Um, it it, it kind of hides the risk and shifts it um, to these, you know, massive events like you see here, which is 2008, uh, and you see here, uh, 2020, or 2020, when when kind of stuff started breaking again, right? And there has to be a sovereign default soon. This can't con- this can't continue. It's impossible. There has to be a sovereign default soon. Whether or not they call it that, whether or not it looks like that on the surface, 1971 was a sovereign debt default, mm-hmm. right? Because all the paper dollars were, were debt instruments. They were IOUs for the bearer asset, right? There has to be a sovereign debt default soon. It is coming soon. And I'm just looking for warning signs. That's really all it is. It's like, you know, you listen to guys like Greg Foss talking about markets. I completely don't understand like the credit default swap markets. Um, and I, I look at that and like, I don't really know what I'm looking at. I look at the credit default swap values and, and the premiums in those markets and stuff like that. I'm just kind of looking elsewhere to see if I can find um, any interesting indicators. And, you know, maybe this is, maybe this is one, I don't know. Uh, is, is this an indicator? The financial times saying that inflation might be the way out of the debt crisis? Yeah, that might work for like a year. <laughs> I bet it worked my, for Venezuela at first. Well, my take on it was that soft inflation-based jubilees might be the way out of the debt crisis. But please note, we'll destroy the savings of the poorest without assets while simultaneously pumping the bags of the richest asset owners and do not, and do not, not actually solve anything whatsoever. It's, it's more than that, though. Like, it completely destroys um, economic more than, activity. More than that? <laughs> yeah. It, it, like, look at, look at the people in Venezuela. Like, they, they can't. They can't do anything like they get paid in the beginning of the day and they have to immediately take that money and go and convert it into something no, but like Colin, they have to go and buy toilet paper or chicken. But their stock market's doing really well. I thought the, <laughs> I thought the economy was doing awesome there. Also, their velocity of money, really good, really high. Fantastic. Great yes. job. <laughs> no inflation. <laughs> we should be like them. That's you know, I remember, like yeah, I don't want to get into politics, but. Well, um, <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not going to go down that. I, I do have a chart. I do have a chart for that, though. Um, I have. Oh, no, I took it off. Well, I was just going to say, like, remember back in like the 90s and like the early 2000s when some of our m- much more progressive left leaning politicians in this country were praising Venezuela. They're like, oh, look, you know, Venezuela has free subsidized everything. <laughs> they're they're totally socialized and look like they're so prosperous and wonderful yeah cool i only have one thing to say about uh politics and it's this chart <laughs> do you do you like this chart as much as i do or do you want me to explain it because i think that this is one of the coolest charts we have on wtf no i, I love people, that chart That's people understand chart. it the least right no and well because like Let's be honest, like most people don't understand really anything about politics other than partisan issues. Yeah. And and, and that's what that's what I'm trying to show right with this back chart. Here. 
Yeah, yeah, no problem. This, that's what I'm trying to show with this chart is that essentially, so <laughs> let's let's break it down a little bit, folks. Let's go on a little history lesson here. Uh, 1900, right here at the beginning. Uh, 1913, establishment of the Federal Reserve, okay? Uh, and then a bunch of stuff happens. Um, but 1944 is the Bretton Woods Agreement, and we have the closest thing we've had to sound money in um, in the last you know century, essentially. And what you see is uh, it seems like there's a little bit more agreement. It's almost like a period of sanity um, in politics. And then 1971, of course, what do we see? We see polarization. You ever heard that word recently? Uh, divergence of these political spectrums. Um, it, it almost almost like an insanity at this point where nobody can agree upon anything, right? Um, and 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 I point to, as usual, um, the debasement of our currency, um, the increase in inflation, the increase in distortion of prices and incentives um, as really the key drivers of, um, you know, this, 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 this pulling apart of our society, the tearing apart of our fabric of, of the way that we, you know, money is the tool by which we cooperate. And uh, when you break that, you, you, you break everything. Um, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's fucked. I was listening to um, my friend CJ, a podcast that he did um, last night, and it was about civil religion. Um, and it, it's kind of hard to like really wrap up. It took his podcast was like an hour long to make like one point, but like he basically talked about like more and more lately, like he's had students come through his class. He teaches history um, that have been, that have submitted like anonymous reviews of his class um, that the university asks for basically saying that like, you know, he's anti-American that he's, he's way too political and he he's, um, really all he does, like, he's, he's very objective. All he does is like teach history. Granted, it's maybe less popular history and it's maybe history that often casts the United States and particularly it's politics in a negative light. Um, but they're, they're real events. Like they really happened. Uh, and, and what he's trying to do is like, get people to think differently, to break outside of that, that partisan, this was really hard for me to break out of personally, to break out of the partisan way of thinking that it's like, there's the right and there's the left. And if you're not with us, you're against us. Because if you're not Republican, you're obviously a Democrat. And if you're not a Democrat, you're obviously a Republican. And anything that doesn't agree with me is Republican. And if you're Republican, everything that doesn't agree with me is Democrat. It's so stupid. It's so insane. And it's really, really, really hard to break out of. Um, it was really hard for me. I know, just speaking personally. Yeah, um, that's really, that kind of builds on what I was saying in a, in a really good way. So thank you. And the other two, the other two things we have about um, politics are uh, analysis shows that political speeches use simpler language post-1971. Um, so like they're dumbing down. So not only are the, pol the political, um, you know, pillars div dividing and polarizing people like you're talking about, but they're also like getting dumber and appealing to a dumber populace. Uh, and, and have you ever read Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death? No. You would love that book, man. So that book talks about how like back in the days of, of Lincoln, um, I think when he was debating, I think it was Frederick Douglass. I'm not sure, but they would debate for like eight hours and people would like, people would go and listen to these debates. Cause that's like what, what you did. Right. And they'd go and they'd listen to these guys debate for like four hours. And then there'd be like an intermission and everyone would go have dinner. 
And then they'd come back and listen to these guys debate. Like e- each participant in the debate would get like an, like 30 minutes to like anywhere from like 30 minutes to like multiple hours to talk about a single point or like their position around a particular issue. Go, go look at the debate today. Remember the last presidential debate? They give each participant like a seconds. minute to give a response. <laughs> it's so sensationalized and it's so um, vapid. Like there's no meaning in really anything they're saying. It's all platitudes. And what are they talking about? And this is the, this is another chart that I, I feel like a lot of people have trouble understanding what, why I included this. And I think, I think even you were like, why, why did you include this chart? Um, so uh, really quickly, just wanted to show folks, uh, you know, here, here's four main things that, you know, politicians talk about, right, over time, 1950 all the way to 1980. And you can see it's foreign affairs, is the economy, social control, and civil rights, right? So civil rights, you see that big spike there, that makes sense. Um, foreign affairs, obviously, when there's a wars, those go up. But what I thought was really interesting is the economy line. If you watch it, uh, you know, it's kind of one of the things that the politicians talk about. But all of a sudden, 1971, boom, bl- breaks out and all the rest of the things don't matter anymore. All we're talking about, oh, how do we save the fucking economy that we destroyed by inflating our money supply? It's like, come on, dude. The one that goes really well with this is the one, uh, I don't remember if it's even on the site, but it's the one about what young people uh, are most care about into the future. Oh. Yeah. Do you remember that one? I think it's on the site. And it's, it was like, at one point in time, it was like, like all, basically, in 1971, most everyone only cared about getting extremely wealthy. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. And it's because. Oh, yeah, I got it. I got it right here. Because of the way the time preference and the culture shifted. Because it became, like we said earlier, it became about protecting your revenue streams and making as much money as you possibly could, right? To Even though people don't internalize this, it's to stay ahead of inflation. That's the only, that's the only point. It's the green line. <laughs> Right? Yeah. Is this the one you're talking about? Yeah. Those that was um unfortunately that chart doesn't there there's like not really a good explanation on that chart, like what exactly it's displaying. Maybe we need to fix that. But that was uh I think it was like college freshmen that were interviewed and asked that question at the start of their college career, like what things were most important to them. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, that, that doesn't have a very good uh, graph title, does it? Yeah, I pulled that out of a study. And the study, you know, obviously explained to you, like, what, what the chart was showing, but, like, the, the graph title doesn't. And we'll, maybe we'll update that if we feel like it. Yeah, we probably won't. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man, well, I don't have a ton of other things. Um, I, I, I threw some, uh, some stats on here, like, kind of like Marty and Matt do. Um, Fees per block is 0.61 BTC. So we're still averaging like 9% um, fee fees over subsidy, uh, which I think is bullish long-term. I think that's, that's higher than I expected to be at this point. Um, another one I thought was really interesting, uh, realized monetary inflation um, is 1.98%. It's basically 2% right now of Bitcoin. Bitcoin's monetary inflation, which is a lot higher than I think a lot of people think. Um, because I mean, a, they don't realize that monetary inflation in the USD is like 10% on average of the last 50 years. Um, but this is a little bit higher than most people think because <clears throat> it's actually still higher than gold. Gold's average is around 1.8%. Uh, 
It's only a little bit higher, um, but the forward monetary inflation is basically already on par with gold at 1.8%. And, and you, you have to factor in um, like paper derivatives markets and how that obfuscates gold's physical inflation rate. Because oh, the, point. the, the precious point. metals markets have been totally co-opted and manipulated. It's basically a form of credit expansion is what you're saying, right? Right. And and that will never settle. That's what these that's what these precious metal bugs don't understand. Like there will be no silver squeeze. <laughs> if you think there will be, you're dumb. Because nobody's taking physical delivery of silver. Right. Um, and you're not like you can you like the market will remain what's what how's it go? The market will remain insane longer than you can remain solvent or something yeah, like that. Yeah. There are entire like Go look into JP Morgan's fines for manipulating the precious metals markets. It is more profitable for them to do illegal things and pay the fine than for you to ever have your silver squeeze. That's yeah, business man. in America. Go listen to Max Kaiser talk about this. Like this is how business is done in America. You do things illegal to make a crap ton of money, and then you take your slap on the wrist and pay the fine, which is like ten percent of the money you made doing illicit things. This is how these financial institutions operate. And to be fair, with the coming of the ETF and uh, the the massive interest in these funds that exist today, like GBTC. Um, those are all totally not your keys, not your coin situations. And I actually learned recently that ETFs don't have to 100% own the, the underlying. They can use like futures exposure um, to, to back up their ETFs in some senses. And I think, unfortunately, it may take some of these institutions getting burned on, on some of the stuff before they, they start actually, you know, custodying with, um, you know, with, with either really good custodians or actually holding some of it themselves. It was... I almost had a chance to ask Michael Saylor in a um, recent Clubhouse interview about, um, w- you know, what he thinks or when he thinks corporates might actually start holding some of the Bitcoin themselves. But we know at least Tesla is planning on um, trying to custody it in some way um, when they take uh, payments. So, I mean, I, maybe it's just something that needs to evolve as custody tools get better for institutions. But like they are they are institutionalized to not custody any of their assets. So it's a it's going to be a mountain, I think. This gives me a good chance um, to talk about the stuff that like I've been so pissed about lately. And now I know anybody that's like still here in the live stream, maybe, maybe I'll catch like one or two people, but like anybody that's still here in the live stream, chances are, if you're listening to the podcast episode of this and you're still here, I'm preaching to the choir, but I do know from time to time we hear from people that are like, Hey, I listened to your so-and-so episode and it changed the way I think about whatever. Um, So this is for you. If you want to own Bitcoin, you've got to be willing to do the work. Like, how many of you guys have not even read Rothbard? You've read none of the Austrians. How many of you guys don't, you're not even code literate? I'm not telling you to be able to go out there and like, you know, merge PRs with Bitcoin Core. But like, you need to understand the basics of code. You need to understand what's going on here. You cannot expect, like I got a DM from someone the other day and they're like, Hey bro, I have $2 million in crypto and it's all on a treasure. Do you think, or it's all on a ledger. Do you think of that? That's safe. I'm like, no dude. I'm like, did you use the default setup? You know, he used the default setup. Yeah. He's like, Oh yeah, I'm not very technical. <laughs> like, dude, you, you are going, you may not, it may not happen tomorrow. It may not happen next year, but you are going to get wrecked. 
because there, there's so many reasons, but like you, you guys, you need to do your homework. If you want to be sovereign, if you want to take advantage of the sovereign benefits that Bitcoin gives you, you need to read the Austrians. You need to be at least somewhat co-literate. You need to run your own node. You need to hold your own keys. You need to be operating under the assumption that half of the people that you run with, like in these online circles, these people that you do not know are bad actors that are trying to steal your Bitcoin. If you're not operating under the assumption that half of these people, like literally like influencers, you do not know these people. Yeah, you might really like some of the stuff that they tweet. Yeah, they might really like, you guys might go hang out at a conference sometime. Yeah, they might even like invite you over to their house for a beer. You do not know these people and you do not know their motivations. And if you own Bitcoin, you are a hot target because if you've been in Bitcoin for more than like four years, chances are you've accumulated at least a decent amount of wealth in this protocol. You need to do your homework. You need to think for yourself. And if all you're doing is listening to your favorite influencers and taking their advice on how to be sovereign, you are not doing yourself um, a favor because you're going to get wrecked. And I like, it's a hard problem to solve because what do I tell this guy in my DMs who says, oh, well, I'm not very technically competent. How do I secure my $2 million in cryptocurrency? Like, dude, you are so far behind the power curve. I would be, I would not be able to sleep at night if I were you. Yeah. Don't trust verify. Everybody's a scammer. They're not just memes guys. You, you, you got to do the work. hundred percent. Good rant, dude. Good well, rant. what got me, I've been thinking about that rant for like a week. Cause what got me going on it was people wanting me to talk about the whole, um, all the drama, like in Bitcoin security. Right. I will tell you, I will tell you, Larry, let me tell you guys like what I think in terms of Bitcoin security is best practice. And this is based on like not any of my favorite influencers or my buddies in my DMs who I, you know, like, don't get me wrong, guys. I have made some awesome friends in Bitcoin, extremely intelligent people, people I like very much, people I've met in real life and built relationships with. Don't be naive. You do not know these people. Do not trust them. Do not trust. Verify. You know, like your, your, your assumptions in security. And this is, this is based on my like reading like Greg Maxwell and yes, J.W. Weatherman, who whether you think he's legitimate or not, whether you think he's a security expert, doesn't freaking matter. Listen to what he says, not what people say about him. If you don't like what he says, decide for yourself. That's fine. I don't care. Like I'm not sitting here to try and convince you, but you need to think for yourself right? If all you're doing is listening to these people selling you products and they're telling you that their product solves your problem, you need to be skeptical. You need to be really skeptical because free and open source software will obsolete these people and their business models because Bitcoin is software, right? So what are some of my general basic assumptions? Generic hardware is better than Bitcoin specific hardware. Why? Simply because the attack surface is smaller. It's, it's so much harder to compromise generic hardware supply chains, generic software supply chains that have lots of security and code review. It's then these Bitcoin specific devices with like these closed source um, secure elements that yes, you can maybe audit the firmware, but you have no idea. You have no way to verify what firmware that secure element is actually running, right? You are not involved in the supply chain. You don't know what kind of malware could be on these devices. You are simply exposing yourself to more risk. Generic hardware is better. You have to run your own node. Multi-sig is better. 
right? Like I, I had this thread the other day about the passphrase thing and the seed in separate locations and people are like, oh, wow, I've never thought about it like that. It, it, you people, you've got to take this crap seriously because you will get wrecked. Someone will come along that's smarter than you and they will steal from you and they won't care. They won't feel bad about it. Yeah, and on, the, on that supply chain thing, I just wanted to throw one thing in there because uh, Colin and I were kind of steel manning this the last you know week or two, and I was trying to push back on some of the things so we can try to really get to the heart of this stuff. Is and that's what Colin's saying is like you got to understand the principles, you got to really understand for yourself, know your own situation, what's best for you. Um, and on that supply chain issue, that one of the ones that he he kind of shut me up on was that you know if people are talking about these nation state level attacks where, oh, you know, governments will mine empty blocks and shit, right? And they'll spend, you know, 100 billion on that. And like, that was FUD because it turns out there's ways to, to get around, uh, you know, people mining empty blocks because you can just disconnect the blocks. But if governments are willing to spend hundreds of billions of dollars and deploy, you know, all of these mining operations to do that, if you'll entertain that idea, but you want to entertain the idea that they could somehow get into the supply chain of a hardware monument, a wallet manufacturer, um, and that that could be kind of a systemic risk on Bitcoin, um, man, that, I, that, that one made me think. So I don't know, just food for thought. Um, well, let's, let's, let's continue to think from first principles guys and not just, uh, go with the, the flow. I think let me expand to that. So part of the reason that I get upset when people start recommending like these custodial multi-sig solutions with like these proprietary key generation schemes that are not open source, um, or maybe they are open source, but like they handle it for you. So like, you still don't really know. Um, and why I get upset about people just blanketly recommending hardware wallets is because most new entrants into this space are going to go with the easiest path of least resistance. So like, let's say you convince me, okay, I'm going to just buy a cold card, right? Yeah, everyone, every, all the plebs, they use cold cards. Cold cards legit. NBK, he's a really cool dude. By the, for the record, I do think NBK, he seems like a really cool guy. He's really Very smart. Cool. I'd love to have a beer with him. He's I don't like too. his product that much. <laughs> Why? Because go look at the default cold card setup instructions. How many of you plebs just use the default cold card instructions? Because you're too lazy to figure out how to run your own node. You're going to hook up your cold card to some random ass Electrum server and trust that they're telling you what you're receiving is actually Bitcoin. While leaking your privacy. You haven't even thought about this. And you need to, because if you don't, someone smarter than you is going to figure it out. And they're going to, they, they, there's so many attack surfaces in Bitcoin right now because of the culture uh, around security. And it is so dangerous, guys. Do not buy these like and that's my problem with like people shilling casa multi-sig and being like oh well no if you go with the platinum version who's gonna buy the platinum version not the newbies they're gonna buy the gold version and they're gonna have two of their keys basically in control with casa that is worse you, know, you might as well leave your coins on the exchange like until you're ready and and this is where a lot of people disagree with me they're like no you need to get to a self custody setup as soon as possible you rush people into that before they understand what they're doing they will wreck themselves they need to be ready to do the homework from day 1 to properly self custody their funds and that's not easy no it's not it's really hard <laughs> but you know do be the guy with 2 million dollars on a ledger and, and hang around and fuck around and see what happens
it's so, only a matter of time. And I maybe maybe 10 years from now, we're going to be like, wow, that heavily armed clown guy, he was always fighting security. He's like, but my coins have been on a ledger and they've been fine. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe not, you know, but it's security by the time um, security vulnerabilities like happen and, and are uh, exploited. It's too late. That's the point of security is to try to stay a step ahead of the bad actors and minimize your attack surface so that you're less likely to be attacked in any way, shape, or form. By the time a vulnerability is exploited, it is too late. Can we end with a, a with a bullish kind of thing about custody that um, I, I talk about a lot that I, I hope is coming soon? Um, I think Brian Bishop is the one that's working on uh, Bitcoin covenants um, and uh, specifically a vaults that's a type of Bitcoin covenant. Um, so maybe go out and find Brian Bishop and help support him because um, I know it's something I want to do. Um, Bitcoin covenants are a way that you could protect a whole stash of Bitcoin where um, two different transactions are needed before Bitcoin could be moved. Um, and when the first transaction is spotted where somebody basically got a control of your seeds or your keys, um, then you can basically call it back to where you want it to be. And what's even more crazy about that that I think I'm starting to realize is that with Taproot, um, you could lock it into a contract like a Bitcoin covenant and nobody would know it would look like a regular on-chain transaction. I just actually just put those two pieces together in my mind where because Taproot um, hides the, uh, the, the outcomes of these scripts um, and make them look like regular transactions until they're redeemed um, and, and redeemed in one of these uh, edge case uses, um, that, that, that things like this, I think, become less of a problem. Um, I also am super bullish on decaying multi-sig, um, but neither of these things are, are production yet. So, um, you know, there's all this stuff is still being built. Um, yeah, there's a lot of innovative software solutions coming soon that are like on the horizon. And I, I know it's hard right now. Um, you know, like a lot of these things, they're not perfect yet. And they're they're complex and they're difficult to work with. But like iterative software will fix this. Um but like, guys, just don't be one of these people that gets complacent, right? You, you need to constantly be thinking about these things because security is always a moving target. Yeah, and uh, oh, also shout out to um, Justin Moon for his work on the BitBoy, which is basically a hardware wallet that's used, that's built with off-the-shelf components. And I think- um, Spectre ben, DIY yeah, as well. Yeah, which Ben Kaufman, shout out to Ben Kaufman. He's a friend yeah. of- a, friend of the pod who's also working on Spectre DIY. So Th those are awesome products. And they're the only solutions that I recommend from like an optimal security perspective, you know, um, other than like something like Yeti cold. And it's just because, you know, it has like, forget about the people behind these projects, forget about the personalities, forget about the influencer status that that is bullshit. You have to think about these things from first principles and those three products Spectre DIY, something like a BitBoy and Yeti Cold, they check the right boxes for me. But but those are harder, Colin. Yeah. No, they're oh. definitely harder. Yeah. How will I onboard noobs $2 million at a time? <laughs> <sighs> We're early, folks. We're early. Yeah. I guarantee you guys, Michael Saylor doesn't have his billion dollars, multi-billion dollars in Bitcoin on a Trezor with the default setup. No, but unfortunately he has it in custody. I think... Uh... What is it, Coinbase or something like that? Yeah, maybe maybe I shouldn't even bring that up. <laughs> Got to level up your game, Mike. I know you're listening. It's, it's something I want to ask him about. I'll get a chance eventually, I hope. Yeah. Well, th that's the thing is like these software companies, like 
because really that's what MicroStrategies is as a software company. And then like take, for example, like Elon Musk, right? Like they were freaking submitting PRs to uh, BTC Pay. Pay server. Shout out BTC Pay. Yeah, that, that's legit. You guys can, you totally have the tools to do this right and to do it safely and to do it in such a way where you are totally self-sovereign. But it's hard. Distribute your keys, like create a multi-signature scheme, distribute your keys geographically, internationally. You know you have the ability to do it. Make yourselves self-sovereign organizations. Trust me, a time will come when you will need that. Especially if you're securing $2 million. Yeah, so I'll, I'll go ahead and DM me. I'll collect my consulting fees mm -hmm. and uh, we'll move forward. <laughs> All right, seems like a good place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And soapbox. We um, we just do this because we haven't we haven't really had a, a a chance to chat and 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 put out any content. So we just started to do this once a week, Saturdays, same time. Uh, it's it's we're not gonna do a ton of research and 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 work on production and stuff. So you're probably gonna get five or ten minutes of us trying to get Ben's audio working at the beginning of it. But uh, we'd like to keep doing it. So we're gonna try to keep doing it. So we appreciate you guys. <laughs> I'll do better next week. That's my <laughs> refrain. I'll do better. We'll venture this. We'll, we'll try to do slightly better, <laughs> but no promises. Yeah. All right, guys. See you next week. Same time, same Moscow time, same Moscow place. <laughs>